Hello, welcome to Sea Hanks and the Memories. I'm your host, Darren, and today we are discussing the final of the Golden 14. This is where Tom Hanks' career probably peaked, and uh, it's been swinging some roundabouts since then. Uh, we are talking about Catch Me If You Can. It was released on the 25th of December 2002. <laughs> and joining me to talk about it today, uh, you've just heard him. It is, that is Luke Allen. Hello, Luke. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, sorry. I, was, I, I, I didn't wait for my intro. I was just shocked because um, it does not feel like that long. Um, and also joining us, hello. <laughs> Ollie Brady. Hello, Ollie. How are you doing, Darren? Ed. Um, the opening titles of this film, kind of amazing. We don't waste any time when the film starts. We get straight into some opening titles. Um, this is not like the film Last Night in Soho, which has no fewer than six production logos before the film actually gets going. Uh, this has one production logo. It's DreamWorks, and then we're straight in. Um, and the opening titles are done by a company called uh, Degas and Kunzel. Um, that is Florence Degas and Olivier Kunzel. I'm sure I'm saying those names wrong because I'm sh- almost certain that the people are French. Um, considering that they that uh, Olivier graduated from Cer um, Ecole Nationale Supérieure des Arts Appliquées, a, I mean it's a long French title, so, so I felt uh, like I was in Paris there, Darren. Yeah, I, <laughs> I'm really I'm really bringing it home, but uh, obviously <laughs> it is inspired by Saul Bass and his you know various posters and opening credits, um, and they actually made this is going to be insane. They made stamps. And they stamped every single frame of this and then they animated it that way. So uh, if you search about online, you can find stamps of uh, the different parts of the bodies, uh, the different heads. They basically, you know, all the airplanes, they just stamped them. They took them like two weeks to cut out all these stamps. And then they just stamped them literally onto paper. And that's why they kind of move as they did. And then obviously over the top of that, they put the, uh, you know, the words were done. I think the words are the only thing that done digitally. Everything else... You know, the women sitting at the typewriters, the, you know, the piano when it comes up with John Williams credit. All of that stuff is done with stamps. And it's kind of amazing. It's like basically hand drawn animation. And then, uh, you know, eventually they kind of transferred it all into, uh, you know, into the computers and they kind of added all the, the, the actual titles because apparently doing the names was a little bit difficult. So they, they were just like, we'll do that later on. But all the animation is hand stamped basically and photographed that way. Um, and it is kind of amazing. Uh, and I, within like, I don't know, a year, um, it was parodied on The Simpsons where they had um, Marge and Homer trying to get away from their kids. And they they, they used the same music and they kind of did the, the kind of in the exact same style. Um, and yeah, so that's that's obviously how iconic this sequence became. Um, and if you search for articles about Catch Me If You Can from like t- early 2003... They're pretty much all about the title sequence <laughs> because, you know, that was the thing that people kind of remembered. Um, and I think that, the, I mean, you know, a, a thing that goes kind of uncredited really is the fact that John Williams music was kind of perfect for the kind of the, the titles. From the moment yeah. the film opens, you're immediately in, you know, the 60s. Um, and, you know, John Williams, obviously, you know, everyone knows who he is, but it's kind of remarkable that like this is nothing. This isn't anything like his other stuff for kind of I mean he did Minority Report the same year you know like it's nothing like anything in that and it's kind of amazing that he he kind of came up with this very specific style of score just a slightly um, uh, maybe controversial thing uh, the score for Minority Report is unbelievable but it's also I, I think it's one of Spielberg's best movies so just keep that under the, the radar because a lot of people don't like it I think it's I think it's perfect I think it's a five star classic it's one of the best sci-fi movies of all time I like Minority Report you know you don't like it enough Darren well, I mean, I don't own it on DVD, so I do own this on DVD though. Uh, yeah, me too. <laughs> this, is, this is one of the this is one of the few Tom Hanks films that I own on DVD. Uh, this and Road to Perdition and the next film is like a run of three that I own on DVD. Um, so it's a. Are you not? Are you not a physical media guy? I am a physical media Ooh. guy. I've got roughly one and a half thousand DVDs, Luke. So. So why the heck do you <laughs> do a Tom Hanks show and not have? A large number well, of Tom Hanks. In fairness, on Luke, DVD. this Thomas Hanks had a lot of supporting roles, so he didn't really have any movies that he could call his own. So Darren might have a lot of his films on DVD, just doesn't count them as as Thomas Hanks movies. I only I only have two Spielberg films on DVD: this and Munich. Those are the only two. Um, so, I think I think we have almost identical film DVD collection sizes as well. I'm about one and a half thousand, I think. 
and then TV set. Well, yes. How do you count TV? Do you count seasons? Do you count the amount of discs in each season? How if? Yeah, I don't Mad know. Men, I, I Mad Men up. came I, out I, in I've two seasons. Do you of... count each of the, you know the final seasons two diff- separate sets? Do you count each of those as two separate sets? You know, how do you count TV? It's crazy. I don't know. It gets confusing when you get to the thick of it as well, because that was released as series one and then was released as series one and two, despite the fact that it's still the same episodes. It's just a mess. I don't know what's up with that. Um, but yeah, I, I've also run out of space. I've stopped counting because I've just got... I, I was lovely and organised, and now the end of my shelf, the alphabetical shelf, is just everything at the end of the alphabet in just a dumped <laughs> pile because I've run out of I don't, shelf I don't sort of stuff by alphabetical. Like, That's insanity. I sort it by director and then actors. Ah. Uh, that's, sorry, I'm sorry, Derek. That, that's a move. <laughs> Alphabetical is insanity. <laughs> Organized by directors and then actors is not. Well, all you have to do is when you finish like a run of a director's stuff, you just have to find an actor that connects it to another director. So you can go from Quentin Tarantino to Kevin Smith. You know, if you put if you put, and that's an easier way if of you put finding Wes Craven them? in the middle. Yeah, but but I'm just saying is you can go from. Kevin Smith to Tarantino if you go alphabetically and then don't have anybody else in the middle <laughs> that's how it works yes well I mentioned I have this on DVD because I didn't I didn't see this at the cinema I did see Minority Report at the cinema but I didn't see this at the cinema and Binet on DVD was the first time that I watched it on the cinema and to be honest with you I think I bought the DVD uh, mostly for Amy Adams because I do have an Amy Adams section that also has um what was the film that she did after this that was quite famous? I can't remember. The one about the where she's got like the baby and it dies. Not to spoil that film for anybody. Oh, June Junebug. Oh, yeah, Junebug. So it's it's with Junebug and uh, Enchanted and Doubt. That's that's all in my Amy Adams section. I don't know why the first film I think of whenever I think of Amy Adams is Cruel Intentions Two. Oh. I don't know why that's where my brain goes. That's an average Cruel Intentions film. Two is with my Cruel um, Intentions collection, obviously. Uh, the only thing I remember about Cruel Intentions 2 is for a long time, I used to go to a, a table quiz, like a, for American listeners, a trivia night. And one of the teams was called a, a, like a really esoteric line, but it's a line that turns out from Cruel Intentions 2. And it's now I know why girls like horses. And that's a line <laughs> in Cruel Intentions 2. But for, so I, I had never seen Cruel Intentions 2 and I'm watching like, so for years, this, this table quiz team would be like second or third in the quiz and their team was called now i know why girls like horses and then one day randomly watching cruel intentions too like 15 years later i'm like oh my god that's what they were referencing <laughs> can i also that the ending uh, this isn't the cruel intentions oh, 2 podcast, be, obviously but the ending of cruel intentions 2 does not make sense for Catherine and Sebastian to sleep together, considering it's a prequel, and the entire premise of Cruel Intentions is that relationship. Don't go just throwing that on an end joke. Yes. And then Cruel Intentions 3 is a thing that exists that I've seen and couldn't tell you anything other than than it's like Pacey from Dawson's Creek. (laughs) I mean, I saw saw Amy Adams in Drop Dead Gorgeous, which is obviously, that film is with my Kirsten Dunst collection, uh, which includes obviously Spider-Man's 1, 2, and 3. Um, you know, because that's how you should—that's how you should sort your DVDs. Um, <laughs> or was it the other guy? For, sorry, sorry, I'm now thinking. Was it Pacey from? It was one of the. No, it was. Uh, it was. Uh, it was the, the guy. Other, it, it the was one Kirsten. that I don't like. It was Kurt Smith, who was like 32 yeah. when he joined Dawson's Creek and was playing a 17-year-old. <laughs> I, um, I like to refer to him as um, Final Destination. That's that's all yeah. I call And it. Oh, yes, playing a kid he, in yes. Final Destination as well. People complain about indeed. casting in Dear Evan Hansen, but that guy was like 35 when he was I'm in fairly Final certain his kid was one of the other teenagers. <laughs> well, the thing, the thing about the Dear Evan Hansen stuff is that like, they wanted to preserve Ben Platt's performance. Sure, like it was pretty good. But he has to change his performance in order to be on film anyway. So it's a different performance. So they're not preserving the same performance anyway. So Let's yeah. not get mired in Dear Evan Hansen. Uh, let's, let's jump back to Catch Me If You Can. And Ollie, did you see this at the cinema or were you I, like me? I, I did not see this cinema. I, I'd seen Minority Report in the cinema because I'm a big sci-fi nerd. And... I think, Darren, when did this hit the cinemas? Well, it was 2003 over here because it was a Christmas. No, but that's what I'm saying. Do you remember? Do you remember? It was Christmas, Yeah, it was Christmas 2002. So it didn't didn't come out over here until like about a month later. About a month after. Yeah. So I was, at at that stage, I was living in the town where I was working as a teacher. 
And I legitimately took off about seven months from going to the cinema because every time I went to the cinema, I was surrounded (laughs) by students. And because I was a young teacher at the time, I didn't know how to handle it. I was like going, I'm going to tell these kids to F off. Um, which is funny because when you're 21, 22 and you're teaching, you think that's a problem. Now as a 40 year old teacher, if I met a student at cinema, I'm telling them the feck off. Like it's not a problem, but you think it's a big problem back then. So I just avoided going out and doing stuff like that. So there's a, the majority of the early months of 2003 until I moved, I didn't go to the cinema. So that's, that's like a little blank spot in my head in my, in my movie going ways. And obviously Luke, you didn't see it at the cinema because you weren't, yeah, you no, were born. I was minus to two. Make uh, every, to make me out. feel old, to make Ollie <laughs> feel old, to make anybody listening feel old, you weren't around when this film came out of the cinema. One of the Tom Hanks movies that I've got booked out, I did go and see in the cinema, but all of the rest of them were before I was born, I think. Um, but yeah, it's I, I, I saw this on DVD. Um, I think I was like 10 or 11, and I watched it with my dad, um, and had a whale Luke, of the time. Wait, um, so based on... So you're going to be on an episode, a future episode of this show where you've yeah. seen the movie in the cinema. It's a Tom Hanks movie. So yes, it's a, br- it's a pretty like, recent movie. <laughs> I was going to say, like, f- Sully? <laughs> no, after Sully, actually. Um, the, one I'm, the one I'm on for is Beautiful oh. Day in the Neighborhood, uh, which was like... Three what, years ago. I have never seen. I mean, I... Yeah. Because I'm fast, I'm fascinated by Fred Rogers, despite the fact that it's very hard to find mm. anything about him. Here. I mean, you know, it's uh, funny because literally fifty percent of the films after the Polar Express are based on real life people. So you had a good chance, Ollie, of hitting the biography, no matter what you said. I, I, that's what I was, I was just thinking. Like, yeah. As I said, we start with the opening titles, uh, which show us uh, people getting on planes, getting off of planes. Uh, Walking underneath people's desks. Um, I mean, it's. I think it's interesting because, you know, it obviously sets us in the fact that we are going to be 100% in the 60s. Like, there's no kind of arguing about it. Um, and, you know, it like, I, I mean, I like the kind of the little touches of the, you know, the kind of the fact that we have Tom Hanks kind of looking like his like the character that's on screen when his name comes up kind of looks around trying to find, um, you know, somebody. <laughs> and, you know, so like it's kind of interesting because it's it's like little touches like that. You know, Christopher Walken's name is when there's some cars driving by. And obviously there's a there's a kind of a weird reoccurring theme within the film about him. And cars, like it, like every time him and Leo are on screen, they're always kind of talking about cars. So I thought that was quite funny. Yeah. Um, Just if anyone listening has never seen Catch Me If You Can, or is, maybe isn't even going to watch Catch Me, Catch Me If You Can, it's worth watching these th- this intro, like this beginning. Like it's it's genuinely the credits are amazing. Like there are a lot of people who will say it's the best part of the movie. It's not, <laughs> but it's definitely worth watching. I mean, it's considering this is from the same year or close enough to spider-man which loads of people talk about as having great credits and i absolutely detest them because i feel like they go on for several hours <laughs> worth of the movie time uh this just like the movie itself just breezes by and just really sets you up and sucks you into this is what the movie's going to be so yeah if you've never seen them check them out i think you can find them on youtube oh yeah no yeah just yeah uh, there's a lot of like um credits companies like people who did opening and ending credits they will put their stuff on um youtube just you know because they did it and they want everyone to know they did it so i think it might even be like the Kunsel and day gas like website or something that has it as well so um, but yeah, the, I mean, it's, 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 what's funny is because like, you know, I mean, Steven Spielberg, I don't know that like these days people really do credits like 20 years later. It's like a weird thing where like last night in Soho, which, which is one of the more recent films I've seen, doesn't really have credits. Like it says last night in Soho and that's pretty much, that's the, that's it. That's all you get. Um, they're kind of, they're kind of moving towards, um, almost like a diegetic kind of thing. You know, where like, um, you'll be. Uh, a minute into the movie and then just somebody's name will be on a wall somewhere and you're like wait what oh yeah that's <laughs> yeah. because he's in the movie and you're like or, or directed by will be somebody will open a door or close a door and it'll pop up directed by like yeah. and i think that's all coming from tv and how does a like a crossover between tv and um and movies now 
and like they're inspiring each other as you would say so you get a lot of that where they're just kind of slipping it in um i know i was listening to another podcast there recently where they were talking about how you get an hour into some movies now before you get the title card (laughs) yeah randomly just pop it up there's a title card and you're like yeah actually until it's mentioned that it never occurs to me like sometimes you do actually not get the title card until quite far into the movie so it's a real change but around about 2000 from about 2000 to about 2005 i think they were just stretching the length like the length of those intros on the x-men movies for example are just they're painful like some of the some of the mcu movies were a little bit like that too where it was just getting a little bit long and now they've just gone now we'll just flick through the marvel marvel characters and just have like the little uh, avengers team sting and then we're into yeah. it but um yeah these ones are are great i mean so, the uh, the, what, the one that i definitely remember taking a while was uh eternal sunshine spotless mind where it's like something like oh 18 God. minutes and then you get like beck's cover of um everybody's got to learn sometime and it's like that's sometime, that's yeah. when the credits come in is like almost 20 minutes into the film and it's just like a jim carrey like crying in a car while that while the while beck's cover plays um it's such a random random way to do it yeah as well. but i mean it's a fantastic movie but like that's very gondry-esque yeah just to kind of all of a sudden 20 minutes in here's i mean at that point i don't think you even really needed the titles <laughs> Um, I mean, it's notable, no. actually, the last time, obviously, Tom and Stephen worked together. Obviously, I can call them that because I know them personally. Um, is yeah, Saving Saving, Saving Private Ryan and there are no credits for Saving Private Ryan. It literally just says Saving Private Ryan, underlines it, that's it. No other credits until you get to the end of the film. Um, so, you know, it is notable here for having a nice long credit sequence. Uh, once we come out of the credit sequence um, and starting off the debate about whether or not this is a Christmas movie... Um, we're at Christmas Eve, nineteen sixty-nine, um, and it is a Christmas movie. <laughs> I mean, the the funny the funny thing is, like, I mean, you know, I'm not going to jump backwards and forwards, but these are sprinkled throughout the film. Is you know, um, Carl Hanratty, played by Tom Hanks. Um, obviously, we have to have him at the start of the film very briefly, just so everyone remembers Tom Hanks is in this because you know that's obviously the draw. Um, and who, <laughs> you know. Uh, yeah um and so this the kind of like him him bringing um you know uh frank jr back to america would be like a little thread that is running through it and in some of these little sections obviously we get to see how petty carl hanratty can be (laughs) and in particular when you know leo is like are you gonna have that eclair and he's like moves it to one side he's like i'll have it later and then he's like, I'll tell you how I pass the bar if you, you know, if you give me half. And then he basically just eats it in front of him. And he's like, I'll find out. <laughs> like, that kind of pettiness. It's nice that the character is kind of established as that, like, the first couple of times we see him kind of in these flash forwards. Uh, because obviously that will kind of be his, you know, that will be his kind of main thing. Um, I should say Carl Hanratty, not a real person. Um, but obviously there was an FBI agent who worked with Frank Abagnale. Um, he died in 2005. His name was uh, Joseph Shea. Um, and, you know, he was from uh, Massachusetts, which is why Tom is doing that voice. Um, because he is obviously, <laughs> you know. Uh, tra- I mean, I would say it's, I mean, you know, Tom Hanks is not really an accents guy. Um, you know, there's been a few films in the past where he's attempted to do like a character with an accent, like in... Um, uh, the one where he met his wife, Rita Wilson, what was that called? Volunteers. He tries to do like an upper class kind of like almost like a Kennedy-esque type accent. And it he never really sells it. Um, and I think his accent in this is OK. But it's one of the things where it's like if he'd have just st- if he'd have just stuck with his normal voice, no one would have cared. <laughs> like, you know, the character is already a fiction on top of a fiction. You know, like it's the the character doesn't really exist. You don't have to make it match the real FBI agent who was from Boston. Uh, But obviously he will. He'll give it a try. Um, But yeah, uh, apparently, uh, you know, he did, he did actually work with Frank Abagnale, um, you know, and he did pursue him for a couple of years. Uh, That obviously will be the backbone of this story. Um, You know, at the end of the film, it will tell us that they had a friendship that lasted 30 years, but we should say straight up front um, in recent years, Everything that Frank Abinell Jr. had said in this book and in the film uh, has been questioned. And there's a strong possibility that none of it happened at all. 
Um, in particular, because some of the time where he, you know, claimed that he was flying, you know, pretending to fly for Pan Am, uh, he was in jail for a couple of years. So, you know, uh, I don't think it spoils the enjoyment of the film. You know, it says inspired by true events. You know, we get this opening of, you know, the to tell the truth. And you have the three people who are all pretending to be um, Frank Abagnale Jr. And I do like this kind of little framing device at the beginning of like basically telling us everything he's going to do. <laughs> Saying like he pretended to be a pilot, he pretended to be a doctor, he pretended to be a lawyer. But I find what's funny is like when those things start to happen in the film, there's still an element of surprise. Like it, the fact that they've just had this quiz show front to tell you everything that's about to happen. It doesn't ruin the fact that as the film goes on, when those things happen, you're not all of a sudden like... Oh, I knew he was going to become a doctor because <laughs> I don't know. You kind of forget about it. Like it's a nice little introduction, and obviously, you know, we all know who the real person is out of those three fake Frank Juniors at the beginning. But yeah, I mean, and I also like the fact that we're framing this around his like his eventual arrest, so we know he's not going to get away with it because obviously Steven Spielberg is a very moral person, and there's no way he could have the main character of his film be somebody who gets away with you know all these crimes. He's got to get. We've got to know he's going to be caught. Um, you know, much like uh, at the end of Saving Private Ryan, there's a very brief thing where it, he goes, and Hitler killed himself before the end of the war. And you're like, well, at least he didn't get away with it. And, you know, Hitler, the main character of Saving Private Ryan. Yeah. I mean, in a way, he is. Um, uh, but I don't think I've, I, I've. I've still yet to see Saving Private Ryan. Another one on my list. Oh. Of, I need to have seen this, but have not seen this. It's a, it's a classic, um, Luke. Once it, it's one of it's one of many many in my fifteen hundred DVDs that I've like just. There, there's those certain films where it's like I can't just put them on casually. I need to be like in a full on focus mode. And then when I'm ready for that full on focus mode, I forget. Well, what just so you know, Luke, end up re-watching about in time. Saving Private Ryan, or Paddington Two, um, Hitler saves Private Ryan. Uh... <laughs> yeah, he calls off the war, and, and he's like, "Go, Go home, home, guys! I've killed, I've killed, I've killed three of your brothers. That's enough. I think I've let's say Hold everybody's up, met their goals. You've let's been stop in a this war. Whole war thing, and let's get this Private Ryan home, <laughs> and then we'll recommence the war. Yeah. Um... So uh, we uh, we open the film proper with James Brolin, uh, father of Thanos, um, inducting Frank Senior at the Rotary Club um, into like their Hall of Fame or something. I it's just an award he's given him. Um, and what I love here is obviously we get introduced to uh, Christopher Walken um, playing Frank Senior, um, and I mean toning it down, not not going too too walking in this film like he's he's keeping a lid on most of it um you know especially later on when they're having the meal and you know like he can't have the car and you know there's a lot he's a lot of very subtle stuff from uh from christopher walking here i'm you know obviously a good reason for why he got the nomination you know it's it's you know it's a great performance um but i just love that when given the opportunity to kind of give a speech he goes into this whole thing about the two mice in the bucket <laughs> one of them uh, one of them uh, like <laughs> yeah, like he d- I mean this is kind of where he I, I mean that like obviously everyone knows kind of like the Christopher Walken you know kind of his cadence and what I one of my favorite stories about Christopher Walken is um he was he was on Saturday Night Live and Foo Fighters were on there and he said to Dave Grohl how do you want me to introduce it and Dave Grohl said the emphasis is on fighters and he kind of, and then obviously Christopher Walker's introducing them, and he goes, and ladies and gentlemen, Foo Fighters. And it's just like, the way he like emphasizes fighters is, it's obviously Dave Grohl told him to do it that way, just to, to hear it kind of in his voice. Um, but yeah, it's, uh, yeah, it's, I mean, it's such a great role. I mean, you know, I mean, he's not, obviously he's a supporting actor, so he's not in a ton of the film, but um, yeah. I mean, my favorite thing about Christopher Walken is the fact that his name's actually Ronald. Yeah, his name's Ronald. <laughs> it's not, in terms of Christopher Walken, by the way, has anyone been watching that new no. show, The Outlaws, the Stephen Merchant? No, thing? I have not. Uh, it's a BBC comedy, it's crime comedy drama, written by Stephen Merchant with Christopher Walken in the supporting yeah, cast, good, yeah. which is an interesting move. But it's it's so good. It's like I I, I thought oh it'll be all right. Like I'm a Steve Merchant fan. I was like I'll give it a go, and I am hooked. How, what, um, it, it is it is. What's a it like when Walken thing, so. comes on screen? Like, is he distracting because he's Christopher Walken? No, weirdly. Like, he, he totally works. 
Um, it, it's about a group of people in community service um, for a whole manner of different crimes. And then they find a, a bag full of money and it's about how they deal with it. Um, and Christopher Walken was like, uh, he was arrested for several cases of theft, but he moved to the UK to escape being enlisted for the Vietnam War and then never went back to America. Um yeah, but he's he's genuinely really funny, and it's weird how he's in this with Steve Merchant, Darren Boyd, like good comedy actors, but not the caliber of actor that Christopher Walken is. Um, but apparently they had to, because he doesn't do email or like phone or anything. They had to Steve Merchant had to fax the script over <laughs> to him, and then got a fax back saying, "Could you come and meet me uh, in L.A.?" And he flew over to L.A. And and he was doing an interview on, on this morning, Steve Merchant was, about it all. And he was like, so what did Christopher Walken think of the script? And he went, you know, I never asked him whether he liked it or not. He just agreed to it. Uh, it's interesting, of course, at this yeah, particular but... point in time, Christopher Walken was coming off winning a MTV uh, Video Music Award for Weapon of Choice. Um, and also a VH1 Award for Best Actor it's, in a Music uh... Video. It was very uh... present in uh, 2021. Like, the guy, if you walk without rhythm, you won't attract the worm. Dune was just released in cinemas yes. there a couple of weeks ago. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And the funny thing about, uh, you know, uh, Fatboy Slim is obviously people know him as Norman Cook, but his real name's Quentin. <laughs> Quentin so, and Ronald. <laughs> yeah. And the director of the video, of course, is Spike Jones, whose real name is Adam Spiegel. So nobody was using their real names on that. Uh, but yeah, and I think it's interesting, of course, you know, that he, he was winning for best choreography because in this film, he does a bit of dancing. Um, you know, after he's got his award, he's there with his wife and they're, you know, they're dancing in the in the living room. Didn't he, didn't um, he volunteer to be in that video? Because he was a dancer, like he, he was a trained dancer and he yeah. asked to be in a music yeah. video. I'm not sure if he asked to be in a Fatboy Slim one, but he asked somebody like get me like his agent i'm assuming get me a part where i can show off my dancing skills before i'm too old to show off my dancing skills that is why he won the best choreography because he did the choreography That's for that awesome. video um yeah so he won he won the mtv uh video music award uh because he did the choreography and obviously he was in it so um but yes and uh, we then get the kind of the beginnings of Frank Abagnale Jr.'s uh, career as a con man when he sees his dad uh, kind of to try to do a con on the bank um, and they go to like a suit store and the woman is like, we don't open for half an hour. And then he does this thing, which obviously we'll see Frank Jr. try a few times later, where he has a necklace that he just kind of pulls out and he's like, did you know i found this in the parking lot is it yours you know must have fallen right off your neck and i like the close-up when he says it must have fallen right off your neck and he kind of smiles because you're like oh yeah this this guy clearly has some kind of charm he has i mean obviously he's christopher walken he has a presence that is kind of unmatched um you know and i just love that kind of this is like the way that frank jr is watching his father kind of pull this con of like getting them to like loan a, a suit because he says it's a funeral and you know he basically just kind of sees how quickly his dad can like lie on his feet and just make up a, a, add a whole cloth a complete con just to get a suit that they can kind of loan so that his son could pretend to be his driver so that the bank manager will open the door for him so that he can try and get a loan and uh and i think it's kind of funny because this both sets up the fact that frank jr will obviously become a con man but also his kind of disappointment and hatred of banks as well is set up at the same time. Um, and obviously that's why he doesn't care about scamming them out of millions because, you know, he hates the banks. Um, and I think these days everyone would be on his side. What I find is interesting is in Catch Me If You Can, I'm not sure that people would these days view Frank Abagnale Jr. as a bad guy. I think they'd be like, yeah, take the banks and the airlines for all that you can, Frank. Um, you know, he's a man of the people, quite frankly. Um, but yeah, in quick succession, we get the idea that there is an issue with the IRS. Obviously, um, you know, Frank Sr. explains to the bank manager he needs to get a loan. You know, there's obviously there's been an issue with the IRS. Uh, he owes them money. Um, and then obviously they lose the car um, and then quickly they lose the house and they have to move. And this is when we get to... Uh, the start of Leonardo DiCaprio kind of really, I mean, 
I think the performance in this is pretty good from him. And I think it starts with him doing this kind of thing where obviously he's, he's, he's in his new school, but he's wearing his old school uniform. So he's wearing a tie and, you know, the kind of the stereotypical bully kind of like bumps into him in the halls. And this makes like when he gets into the class, obviously people are making fun of the fact that he looks like a teacher. And so, of course, he immediately uses this to punish the person who just bumped into him <laughs> and pretends to be a French teacher. Something which is aided by the fact that his mother is French. So obviously he has a certain proficiency in it that would be higher than, um, you know, this kind of uh, school, these school kids. And uh, yeah, he picks the bully to kind of read out a passage in French. And we then kind of do a smash cut to like a week later where, you know, the parents are in the uh, in the principal's office and they're basically saying he's been pretending to be a, a substitute teacher for a, a week um, and teaching a French class <laughs> and of course the real substitute teacher gets really annoyed because she's driven all the way there and she kind of runs off in tears and says she's never going to work for this school again um, and yeah I, I kind of like that like the idea that immediately he's seen how easy it is for his father to lie and you know because people wronged him essentially by kind of making fun of him he immediately jumps feet first into pretending to be a substitute French teacher for a week, which is just such a great um, kind of You class. were just saying that um, you think DiCaprio's really good in this. I, to me, this is his first yeah. proper serious role. Like, I know he was in other serious movies beforehand, so I don't want to dismiss them, right? But you consider that The Beach was seen as a huge departure for him. And The Beach is such an experimental movie. Like, it's it's hard to love, but, you know, you can like it. But when you consider that from this run, right, so... He goes, I've got it missed it down here somewhere. So we got Catch Me If You Can, Gangs of New York, The Aviator, The Departed, Blood Diamond. Like, they're all roles where he was aiming for an Oscar or was expected to be nominated for an Oscar. Bearing in mind that he just come from Don's Plum and Celebrity, which are, you know, nonsense movies directed by jobbing directors. To suddenly be working with the Scorsese's, your... Steven Spielberg's like it's such a step up for him and then every time from this run of movies he's not seen as your young handsome actor anymore at this point he's he's fully into he's a prestige actor so having DiCaprio show up in your movie was seen as a sign that your movie was a serious movie so this here was the first one of those so even though he's still technically playing a teenager or a young person or a handsome young guy this was the end of of that run from everything was meant to be prestige from here on in and I think it really shows he's really pushing. And also, him. I would say as well, Revolutionary Road. That's two thousand and eight. Yeah, that's that's a good movie too. Yeah, yeah. Re- reuniting him with uh, with Kate Winslet in an attempt to win over the Oscar voters, of course, stolen by Michael Shannon. That film was <laughs> so they like they had no chance. Like Michael most Shannon was around. With Michael what Shannon, are you going to do? Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, quite frankly, a Groundhog Day is just a Michael Shannon movie and everybody else is is just supporting actors there. But yeah, I mean, it's funny because, of course, Sam Mendes has literally just worked with Tom in this timeline. You know, obviously, A Road to Perdition was his previous film to this. Um, or his next film? His previous film. No, his previous film was Road to Perdition. Uh, his next film will be The Lady Killers. Uh, so, um, but yeah, so it yeah, it's kind of interesting that, yeah, he, he, he like from this point on, he's kind of fallen into this... Obviously, the kind of at a certain point, there's some flop sweat, like the desperation of like being in anything to kind of get an Oscar nomination, um, and a kind of eventually, of course, years later, finally getting an Oscar win um, for a movie you know, where he uh, absolutely did not deserve it. <laughs> well, I mean, at a certain point, it's like you've nominated him like six, seven, eight, however many times, um, you know, like. Uh, well, it was his sixth, wasn't it? He'd he'd been nominated five times, and then finally they gave him they gave him the Oscar. I feel it feels like it was kind of overdue a little bit. I think really he should have been nominated. Yeah, he's fantastic in this. You know, he he does he does carry the film. You know, like as I said, it'll take us a while before Tom enters. Um, you know, so it's you know it's like just kind of he's really carrying the film and also carrying the emotions, like you know, and and. And playing it with such ease, you know, like when he says to this student, you know, like she's she's got this note that's meant to be from her parents and he's like, it's not folded, so they're not going to believe it. So like he's already kind of giving tips. Obviously, of course, I think that actress is kind of an actual teenager and he's 28. So it seems a bit weird when he's giving this advice. Um, 
but yeah, I like the way that it like it quickly shows the kind of the fall from grace that will be the thing that kind of forces him into kind of this lifestyle. Um, but at the same time, it's showing us that he's not he's not like a dummy. He's not like doing this to kind of I don't know like he's using his wiles basically. And uh, you know, obviously that is forced along by the fact that he then catches his mom cheating with James Brolin, and who wouldn't? I mean, the Silver Fox. I mean, <laughs> you know. Yeah, he's got it all. Um, it's funny because uh, James Brolin and Amy Adams, I think, before this have both been on the West Wing um, at various points. So they had kind of not worked together, but they'd kind of been in similar projects. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, I like James Brolin as well in this small role. You know, he kind of is just there to, you know, be the the friend of his father, I guess. I mean, I don't know, I don't know how much you would call someone a friend if, um, you know. But what I like is how her she can't, she can't lie like her, you know, like his father can. So, of course, when she gets caught, all she can do is say, oh, yeah, and there's two bedrooms. <laughs> and it's like, well, why, was the bed- why was the bedroom li-? like? Like, her improv is not as good as uh, as Frank Sr. or Frank Jr. Um, and I think that's deliberate. I think it's like the fact that she can't lie is meant to be, uh, you know, kind of like, you know, that's meant to be a deliberate thing. And then, of course, we immediately jump into the divorce. It wouldn't be a Steven Spielberg film if somebody wasn't getting divorced or hadn't already been divorced, because obviously Steven Spielberg, for some reason, loves divorces. Um, you know, E.T., someone's divorced. Raises the Lost Ark, I'm guessing someone was divorced in <laughs> You that. know Indy was probably um, divorced twice. <laughs> yeah, I mean, in Jaws, do any of those... I mean, you know, two of those guys on that boat are definitely divorced. <laughs> um, you know, uh, so, I mean, that shark, I mean... There's no way that he's still in a relationship. I mean, he's got to be divorced. Um, yeah, so we get the divorce and Frank has the choice, you know, of which parent he's going to live with. Um, and obviously he is a father's boy. Um, uh, I don't want to say daddy's boy because that just sounds a bit weird. Um, you know, and so he is kind of favoring his father in this and he's kind of blaming his mother, which is true because she was the one who cheated. I mean, you know, that's that's just a fight. Um, and this is, of course, you know, Frank has a bank account and this is where he starts writing bad checks. Um, and I will say this. Uh, I, Americans and checks, it's weird. Like, I, like, I don't know that I ever in my entire life ever wrote a check that bounced. I only ever wrote a check when I knew I had enough money in my account. And I'm guessing, Luke, you've never written a check because you're too young. Uh, no, I've not written a check uh, ever. Um, I, I, I've been given checks and had the real annoyance of trying to sort them <laughs> out because they're annoying. Yeah, I, I, it's really funny because like um, within this film, the idea of like if you write a check, it has to be like guaranteed by the bank that's writing it. But then the way that Frank kind of gets away with getting money at first is by cashing those checks in other banks. Um, and we kind of get this sequence where he keeps going to different banks and trying to charm whoever's behind the counter into cashing a check. And in the end of this sequence, it's met with the words that, like, we don't know you. Like, we're not going to cash a check if we don't know you. And obviously that kind of personal relationship with the bank is one of the reasons why um, you know, Frank Junior, uh, sorry, Frank Senior went to like New York to go to a specific bank was because obviously his bank in New Rochelle are not going to give him any money because they know he's got no money, so he can't get a loan from them. Um, and so I think this idea of banks knowing you is kind of interesting in the in the sixties, um, and obviously something that I'm guessing probably is non-existent today. You know, like I don't know that anybody. If I walked into my my local bank, I don't think anybody would know me, um, despite the fact I've had an account there for I don't know ten years. So. Um, I, I find that kind of interesting that like, uh, you know, there was l- l- kind of less trust, but also more trust. Like if they knew who you were, then they'd let you write checks for whatever you want. But if they didn't know you, then they were never going to cash your checks. And obviously that's something that Frank has to get around. And I like how it kind of, um, you know, immediately he sees, you know, pilots getting out of a, a taxi and going into a hotel and basically being treated like gods and people are asking for their autographs and, you know, and this is where it kind of sparks the idea that maybe I should be a pilot. <laughs> and um, and I like how Spielberg handles this, like, with it's not like at any point Leonardo DiCaprio turns to the screen and goes, I think I'm going to pretend to be a pilot. Um, but we just kind of see without the need for exposition, we see the kind of him setting it up by, you know, obviously pretending to be a student because, you know, that's what he is and going to kind of Pan Am and asking them about how do you become a pilot? 
Um, it's interesting because uh, on the desk you've got the secretary played by Wendy Worthington, who was in Castaway, um, previously worked with uh, Tom. Um, and I like how he kind of gets the information of how Pan Am works, basically. And he's like, you know, this is what you need to be a pilot. And then when he asks about like the uniforms, um, you know, they're like, oh, well, you know, we have this place that does the uniforms. And so he then immediately like kind of calls them and says, oh, I'm a pilot. I've lost my uniform. And I like the interaction with like the, the Pan Am tailor um, where like the Pan Am tailor is like, you look a little bit young to be a pilot. And he's like, I'm only a co-pilot. Um, <laughs> and then he, of course, immediately excuses the fact that he's lost the uniform by saying, you know, oh, it's very embarrassing because it's my first week on the job. Again, kind of playing into the fact that he looks young. And that the tailor is kind of like, you know, helping him out. Um, and I thought that was quite interesting, like the, you know, setting that relationship up right at the beginning. And like, you know, he's obviously a very charming guy. And that's how he's able to get, you know, how, that's how he's able to con people. Yeah, it was incredibly convincing, the idea that, yeah, that I, I, it felt feasible that someone would fall for that. Um, and I think that's the case with, obviously, of increasing absurdity, but I think it's pretty much the case with all of his things, where it's like, the way the film frames it, I, I'm I'm not in disbelief that he got away with it, because I think he's he's charmed them. Yeah. And, of course, um, he then figures out that he can make a check um, that has the Pan Am logo on, and he can cash that at a bank, or even at a hotel. Um, and we see him with like a plane that has the logo on and we see him carefully applying it to the, uh, you know, to the check and then cashing it and being quite happy that it works. And then, of course, we get a kind of like a smash cut to a bath full of of all these plane models. Um, and I like to think that he cashed that first check so he could buy a bunch <laughs> of these models. Like literally that was his plan it was like to get like two hundred dollars on this check and then use that two hundred dollars to buy like 20 models. And we see him with all the checks laid out on his hotel floor, each with like the, the logos on just like drying off. Um and so according to his book, that actually was a thing he did, but it seems so incredibly convenient, sizing-wise and all. Well, I mean, uh, the, I mean, having having worked a little bit in graphic design, uh, there are rules about logos and how you display them and what size they should be at. So it wouldn't surprise me that it was just the right size to fit onto a... Because obviously it's got to be accurate for the... I, I'm guessing that there were bigger models he could buy or smaller models, and obviously they would have had bigger or smaller logos on that would have been scaled to a certain size. So I'm guessing, I mean, obviously Steven Spielberg doesn't show it, but you know, but they could have shown him going into like an airport and trying to find the right size logo. Um, but yeah, like him just kind of get putting them in water and kind of gradually like peeling off the logos and then having all these checks. Um, and what I like is, you know, he's in uniform obviously because that sells the con. And when he goes to the bank, they're like, well, you know, cause He's like, how much can I cash this for? And she's like, $100. But we cash payroll checks for up to $300. And instantly he's like, okay. And then we see him putting 299.10 on a check, you know, using the typewriter to overtype um, to make it look kind of convincing. Um, and yeah, I mean, I just, I love the bathtub of planes as well. It's such, such a quick visual thing. It's like, you don't need to be told, you know, you've seen him do it once, taking the logo off. And then it's like, here's a bath full of planes with no logos on their tails anymore. Um, you know, it's just, you know, obviously that's what Steven's, I mean, let's say that Steven Spielberg, 2002, he's a good director, you know, he's maybe learned a few things by this point. Um, and of course, this is where he learns out about, uh, he learns about deadheading. Um, and he's met by Ellen Pompeo looking absolutely radiant playing a air stewardess, um, not for Pan Am. Uh, I think it's important. Obviously, later on, we find out he never flies Pan Am and that's, that's how he doesn't get caught because obviously if he were to fly Pan Am, they would ask him for, um, you know, credentials, and he obviously wouldn't be able to produce those. I'm sure he could have faked them up, you know, but uh, that would have been a lot. It would have been a lot easier to get caught. Um, so Ellen Pompeo obviously is here uh, as the stewardess Marcy. Uh, I think literally, I don't know, 18 months before she shot the pilot for Grey's Anatomy. Um, interestingly, she also did. I think Moonlight Mile was the year after this, and it had the same costume designer. Uh, Mary Sofres also did the costume design for that. Um, and I'm a huge fan of Grey's Anatomy. Love Grey's Anatomy. Uh, nothing you can say to me that will convince me it's not a great show. And then Pompeo is, uh, you know, a force of nature uh, on that show. She's great. Um, you know. And she's wonderful here in her very brief role. Where, of course, 
uh, you know, she. Ha- what I like is Leo manages to get himself into the cockpit because obviously that's where the deadhead seat is. And he's wondering, he's like kind of, when he says like he's hopping puddles and like, so obviously he's read up on some of the lingo that he needs to convince yeah. the pilots. Um, and I like that he's still, he's wandering around the cockpit and then kind of Marcy comes back in and has to pull the seat down. Uh, because I, I, I think it's funny because he plays it off as like he's just busy chatting with the guys and he hasn't quite got to pull the seat out. But obviously he doesn't know where the seat is. So... Um, you know, I, I like I like his body language of like pretending to be like, oh, I'm I'm just a bit busy. I haven't pulled the seat out yet. And then she just kind of comes in. He's like, take a seat and like, get strapped in because we're about to take off. Stop distracting the pilots. Yeah. You might this kill is people. this is roughly the um, same year as old school. Uh, old school was two thousand three. Yeah, yeah, sorry so, about that. Yeah. So, mid mid two thousand three. I that's the last. Is that must be around about the last time she was, tr- like, really gunning for movie roles if that makes sense um yeah because then because then as you said Grey's Anatomy comes along pretty soon after and then she's tied up to really really long form contracts where she (laughs) she's not gonna she's not gonna get out to make two or three movies a year she was I mean she was also in Daredevil as well at the start of 2003 yeah that Um, that's what I'm saying it's like that that this little run she's uh she's in a few and then I, I can't like it's it I'm struggling to think of any movies she was in after that beyond she like in, little cameos was, interestingly enough she was in internal sunshine and spotless mind but all of her scenes were deleted oh um so she's on the dvd but she's I'm on a podcast to eternal talk sunshine about tomorrow yeah um yeah and then 2005 Grey's anatomy obviously she shot the pilot in mid 2004 hmm. um and that's where she's been for the last 17 years 17 years yeah <laughs> 17 years making yeah. a, a slightly worse version of Eeyore. Which is not... I don't mean that to sound like an insult, Darren, because Eeyore's my favourite show of all time. So it being a slightly worse version of it is not... Like, like for me, that's still praise. Like. I think it's funny because, like, people complain about, like, how... Oh, TV shows have, like, short runs and all that kind of stuff. And, like, everyone's making, like, you know, stuff that's, like, two seasons and it's six episodes or whatever. And, you know... Um, but at the moment, all of the main networks have their longest running shows ever on them. Like Law and Fox Order, has got the Simpsons, CSI. NBC's got SVU. Um, NCIS is the longest running show CBS have ever had. ABC's longest running ever show is Grey's Anatomy. <laughs> like literally all the four main networks. HBO's got Curb Your Enthusiasm, which is their longest ever running show. Uh, you know, FXX or FX has got Always Sunny. Like, literally every single network at the moment has got its current longest-running show ever on the air. It's kind of insane. Um, mm. And then everything else gets, like, one or two seasons, and it's gone. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I guess the only other notable thing that um, Ellen Pompeo has done since this was appearing in the music video for Bad Blood by Taylor Swift. <laughs> uh, because, of course, Taylor Swift is a gigantic Grey's Anatomy fan, and she's also a gigantic SVU fan, and her cats are named after the lead characters from those shows. Um, <laughs> and yeah, and Mariska Haggerty also appeared in that video uh, because yeah. So her her her. her and called, uh, uh, Mariska Haggerty to you too, Darren. Yes. <laughs> oh man, yeah. I mean, uh, <laughs> the worst movie. I regret very time. much. <laughs> Seeing the love guru in the cinema. I don't. I mean, there's a cover of more than words on that with the sitar thing. That's quite funny. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, so obviously, uh, with Leonardo DiCaprio being super uh, sexy, and obviously Ellen Pompeo at this point being under the age of twenty-five, uh, he hooks up with Marcy in the hotel <laughs> later on, um, and and uh, that that takes us straight to the next extremely beautiful young actress that's in this film, and that is of course Elizabeth Banks, who is a bank teller. I like as well how uh, you know figuring out now that he can. Um, you know, get $300 a go instead of just $100 a go. He goes to the bank and I, he goes past each of the tellers kind of looking at them to see which one of them will fall for his charms almost. <laughs> and he kind of goes past a lot of banks and then he stops and then he backs up and then he's kind of like... And I just, I just love that kind of like, um, you know, like him seeing and then being like, oh, hold on a second, and then kind of just backing up a little bit. Uh, Elizabeth Banks, of course, uh, her real name is Elizabeth Mitchell and uh, not the actress Elizabeth Mitchell, who, of course, was on Lost. 
um, which is why Elizabeth Banks is called Elizabeth Banks. Do you normally mention this many people whose names aren't their real names in one show? This has been insane. It's just it's just a thing. It's just a thing that's kind of common in this film. Is there's a lot of people not using. Also, FYI, real I'm not I using my fi- real surname. So there's another little. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know. So uh, I'm yeah. not using uh, my real face, guys. It's my real name. <laughs> well, I've, like I have Mission Impossible too, the new head here. Uh, yeah, I mean, I love Elizabeth Banks because obviously she's great. But in this as well, she kind of she shows him how the check machines work and how they use the Mica, which is like the I'm trying to remember what it stands for, like micro ink something. But like the fact that how it puts the numbers onto the I like the way that they're playing it like very flirtatious. And he keeps kind of like asking her more questions, but as if he's like you know, flirting with her, but he just wants to know how the checks get routed and how it all works. Well, he's and definitely, he's going to take her for a steak dinner, Darren. Like, that's... Well, yes, yeah, that's the promise, isn't it? Uh, I'm sure she will get more than the steak. Uh, I'm sure they get some wine as well. Um, uh, but just, uh, it's, it's such a weird thing. He's like, do you want to go for... Oh, a steak dinner. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, and of course, he then goes to an auction and he buys himself a Mickey machine. And this is where we finally get to the proper introduction of Carl Hanratty uh, of the FBI. Uh, 41 minutes in, here is the star of the film, Tom Hanks. And uh, what I find here is quite funny is that um, he has this slideshow that he's showing to kind of... he Obviously, he's talking about a paper hanger, which is somebody who passes bad checks. And I like that the presentation that they do goes completely wrong because they can't get the the slides to work on the projector and it's just kind of reminded me of being young and teachers trying to use projectors and them never being like sometimes they would skip like a slide or the slides would be upside down and it's you know they were a nightmare um and then gradually i remember them being replaced with overhead projectors which were you know a lot easier for them to use and yet i will Um, say um interactive whiteboards with touch screen and the likes teachers still can't get the hang of them uh, yeah, it's, it's, well, that's it. I mean, Ollie's a teacher. Have you, you got a hang of? Have you, you got the you hang say of? that for yourself, Luke. Some of us are pretty good. Although I was like, oh, I can be the one with the education system perspective, but no, never mind. Although I will say this, because uh, I, I was I was distracted by uh, my wife sending me a text message to make sure I get something later. Um, but uh, I've never written a check. So ever, <laughs> never. I've never had to write a check at any stage ever in my life. Um, so I'm I'm I think you're three years older than me, Darren, maybe, and I I think I, I might be younger than you. Oh, you're young, maybe younger than me. Yeah, uh, sorry, I knew there yeah, was I might a, be younger than you by like about a year. And I've never I've never actually had to write a check. It's like I've always just used a bank card, and it's like I can't like it. It's just like such a weird thing. I wouldn't even know where to start with writing a check. Like, <laughs> Well, um, the weirdest thing is, I I remember literally the day that I found out you could use your bank card in shops to pay for stuff. Because I was at university and I was 18. I'd literally just got my first bank account. Literally just got my first bank card. And it was the start of them doing like the whole... Um, visa, you know, debit. Visa. Yeah. yeah. And so I was with someone and they literally like went up to the counter and they bought some alcohol. And then they like put their card on like the thing where it like went backwards and forwards with a little kind of duplication thing. And then they like signed for something. <laughs> and I was like, hold on a second. You don't have to go all the way to the ATM and then come back and you can literally, but at the course of the time, it was, the, there were certain limits. So I think it had to be over five pounds before you could pay for it. Yeah. Um, and then after that, of course I was like, this is it. I'm going shopping. <laughs> so. but it's the same thing, Darren. It's like, uh, it's like signing for stuff. And uh, like, I, I remember a brief period where you had to sign when you were using your visa because I, I almost never paid with my visa. I, w- I was just, I'd rather just go to the bank or whatever. And then the last couple of times I've been to the States, I still can't get over that they still make you sign for stuff. Like 90% <laughs> of the time you're like, you have to sign this. So I'm like, going, what the hell am I signing for? Like I've, I've gone and tapped it. Like what, what do you want? Like it's done at this stage. I've put in a pin card if I'm putting in a pin code. Like, I, I shouldn't be signing a piece of paper in 2021. Luke's there sitting there going, yeah, I just like wave my mobile phone in the oh, general direction of... Oh, I don't, I don't of... do that. I, I've not set that up. I think that if someone nicks my phone, I don't know have my money as well. I work in uh, a retail, I work in retail and there's, yeah, that happens. A lot of people do the phones or, or they've got, the annoying thing about the contact list is they've got their phones and they've got their cards as the machine just gets really confused. 
Um, but but yeah. yeah, no, I'm uh, through through where the where I work part time. I have had I was remembering on the check front. I have had to take checks to the bank on behalf of the shop. And and I remember the last time I did it because I don't I don't do it very often. But the last time I did, it, I literally went to the I went to the bank and I said, "I have no idea what to do with this, but I believe you do." And that that was that was the conversation. And then she showed you how to use the machine, <laughs> and you took her first dick dinner. And you went. Uh, I found this in the parking lot. Did uh, <laughs> did, you <come> <laughs> did you drop it? Oh my god! Let's go for a Nando's. <laughs> Uh, at this point, uh, Frank Jr. takes Frank Sr. out for a meal, of course. Uh, we have a, a chilled salad fork. Um, and I like here that there's maybe a hint that obviously um, Frank Sr. maybe knows what his son is doing. Because when they're at the meal, Chris- Christopher Walken kind of delivers this line. Because obviously he turn- look, there's a brand new Cadillac waiting from outside, but he turns down the card because it would cause a lot of issues with the IRS. Mm. And... I like that he kind of looks at his son and he's like, you know, everyone in here is kind of wondering, you know, like who you are, because obviously, you know, they're eating, you know, at this fancy restaurant. And he kind of looks at him and he says, the rest of us are suckers. And it's almost like he's acknowledging that his son is going around ripping people off and getting money. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he's like, the, he's kind of buying into the lie that his son is a pilot. Obviously, you know, throughout the film, we get narration from Leonardo DiCaprio in the form of letters that get sent to his dad. And he keeps telling him what he's doing. And he's signed up for the, you know, the the pilot program and all this kind of stuff. And I, I, I kind of like that there's almost a, a hint here that he kind of knows what his son's doing, but he's not going to stop him, um, you know. Um, of course, uh, Carl Hanratty, uh, he manages to catch up um, with uh, the, the paper hanger. Um, you know, him and his guys, they go to this hotel. And this is where we find out uh, that Carl Hanratty is not a man of humor. And they're kind of telling a funny story and he doesn't laugh at it. And they're like, why don't you tell a joke? Um, and he says, OK, knock, knock. And they go, who's there? And he goes, go fuck yourselves. And... What I like is obviously that's the only f bomb in the yeah, film. Yeah, it feels so out of place. Was it just the PG? Was it just the the PG thirteen, not yet twelve a thing of dump an f bomb in there for the sake of ensuring a certificate? Because I can't feel any other I mean, reason for that. This is this is oh, well, a twelve a because also, it has nudity. It's, it's funny. Yeah, <laughs> like it's a genuinely genuinely gets a chuckle out of me every time he I does it. I literally watched this yesterday. Well, people, I mean, you saw the side of Ellen Pompeo's breast when they were having sex. Yeah, but... She was clearly topless. Worse has passed at PG. Yeah, well... But that was pre-12, to be fair. <laughs> I mean, the reason the reason why they do that joke there is because when he gets called in by his superior later, he says to his superior, do you want to hear a joke? And then he goes, knock, knock. And then they cut. Uh, yeah, it works. It's a the good, implication being he tells the it's same a, it's joke. A good, yeah. It's a good it's, gag. That's why it's here. It's fine. But it's just the the, one, the single use just feels so out of place. Um, it always feels out of place in every yeah. 12A. <laughs> so, I, 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 um, I say that as someone who on two different... Sh- let me see short, so it's obviously different. Have written films with two F-bombs. Almost or near enough deliberately on the the one feels like I'm trying to secure a certificate. And then on both occasions, in directing, the actors have decided that the F-bomb doesn't fit and change the line. So my two films are the one F-bomb thing, which I despise. Oh, there you go, see, Luke. You were hoisted by your own So guys, check out my stuff, Um, my plugs. I despise it. Um, (laughs) The one that just got a lovely review does not contain any F-bombs, because I think this is going to be a PG. I don't know. I'm taking it to the BBFC tomorrow, so that's fine. I think you should add some F-bombs into it, (laughs) and that way you might get get Darren to the Uh, He... he takes on the alias of Barry Allen here when he runs into Carl Hanratty. Probably my favorite sequence of the film is just the way that he kind of he like as Carl Hanratty is pointing his gun at him and saying him, you know, put stuff, put that down, put this. Down, he starts gathering up the stuff that he's going to need to keep making these checks. And he keeps saying to him, you know, put the gun down, Carl. Like, you know, I'm I'm like Secret Service. I'm you know, I'm ahead of you. You know, finally, you've caught up to us. The guy's already been arrested. Uh, we see this kind of blind guy being led by his like carer on the stairs, and you know he opens the window and he says, "Look, you know the guy's being taken to the car by my partner," and the way he kind of just sells it, especially when he like gives him the wallet and he's like, "You know, can I see some ID?" And he's like, "Yeah, sure, here, have my wallet." Um, and obviously he doesn't open the wallet, 
you know, he's just kind of taken in by uh, Frank Jr.'s very quick talk in here. Um, and I, I kind of like that, you know, there's a kind of relief, um, you know, that they've caught the man from uh, from Tom Hanks, obviously kind of sitting down relieved and sitting on the bed and kind of thinking to himself, oh, we finally caught him. And then kind of gradually figuring out that, hold on a second, <laughs> maybe that's, that isn't the guy. And then, of course, he opens up the wallet and it's just filled with kind of bits of paper. It's not really got anything in it substantial. Um, and this is, of course, why he gets called into his boss's office because he let him get away, essentially. 